Kunde Buveta. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is Monegasque. So I have no idea how to pronounce it. it it's got accents and umlauts. Uh, but it's Monegasque for Where is the Bar? A question I'm afraid we'll all be asking ourselves when race day rolls around at this historic but sometimes dull track. But that's what I said about Spain, so who knows? I'm Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Not bad, but uh, I would say there's some physical issues with Monaco that are that are maybe less surmountable than Spain. <laughs> uh, Danny O'Dwyer is on assignment, um, but he'll be back next week. If you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you're new to Formula One itself, we've got an episode just for you. Our preseason primer assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you want to go back and listen to that, it's episode 178. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons, covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1, or click the link in the show notes. Uh, I really enjoyed our discussion of uh, the bad sport episode, Need for Weed. Uh, Still thinking about that on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Um, But uh, we have not yet selected our our upcoming uh, Patreon episode topic yet, but uh, stay tuned for that. Want to give a big shout out to our title sponsors this episode over on Patreon. This week listed in alphabetical order, starting with special symbols, at Talking Autos, followed by Abdullah Althani, Abraham Getchel, Alan McCrary, Alex Goucher, Bailey Foote, Bulgarian Bonbons, which I'm going to put an S on. I know Danny likes to do bonbon, the French pronunciation. Uh, Bunny Thorpe, 4275 Crimes. Don't put your PIN number in your Patreon display name. Uh, Circuit Damon, Circuit Demon, or is it Damon? What do you, where do you fall on Damon, Rob? Uh, I mean, this one looks like Circuit Demon. It is, yeah. Uh, there's no A-E here. Yes, yeah, this is uh, David Mule. pronunciation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, please list your Patreon, uh, title, uh, sponsor name in, uh, IPA phonetics. Uh, David Mule, Drew Stewart, Erica Siegel, Gnarly underscore Galt, Goat, sorry, uh, gnarly goat, that is. Gordy's Army, Umberto Roca, Indie Winter, Iron Station Studios, Jason Chadwick, Jason Kelly, Max Voltar, Michael Maves, Olivia Evans, Pyrite Cardcastle, Sniggs, Tanner McCleave, Team Blackjack, TelemetryDuck.com, Troy Stammer, William Rompf, and Your Top Six Dot Games. And that's it for patrons. Let's jump right into this weekend's race in Espana, Rob. Uh, kind of a as-you-were grid, um, maybe with a, uh, a surprise pull sitter at the top. Charles Leclerc, he's been doing great, but Max Verstappen was looking strong. Um, but apparently was reporting a loss of power on his push lap uh, that was caused not by an engine issue, but by... DRS, something that will crop back up later in the race. He starts second, followed by Carlos Sainz, the other Ferrari, in third. George Russell in the Mercedes in fourth. Sergio Perez, the other Red Bull, in fifth. And then Lewis Hamilton in sixth. The Mercedes looking 
much better this weekend after an upgrade that seems to have corrected most of the porpoising issues that have plagued them. Uh, and indeed, many teams brought their upgrades this weekend in part because this track is representative of a lot of the circuits on the calendar uh, in terms of uh, you know the types of turns, um, which is also why it's used as an F1 test track. Uh, Race Vans has a great breakdown of all the upgrades that every team brought, uh, which I will link in the show notes. Uh, Valtteri Botas will line up in seventh. Kevin Magnussen in eighth. By the way, Haas, the only team not to bring upgrades this weekend. Uh, this quote from uh, team principal Gunther Steiner on F1.com, quote, We've decided to wait a little bit longer with our upgrades, as I still think we have performance in the car without them, uh, which we have to get on track. Uh, so sometimes we achieve it, sometimes we don't. We have a good upgrade package in about four or five races, so I'm confident about that. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo lines up ninth, and then Mick Schumacher, first time in Q3 in his career, and he made it just by the skin of his teeth since Norris had knocked him out but exceeded track limits, so that uh, time of Norris's was deleted. Lando Norris will line up in 11th place, just ahead of Esteban Ocon, Yuki Tsunoda, Pierre Gasly, his team apparently uh, told him sorry for the car, Pierre, after qualifying. Uh, apparently they have not exactly dialed in the new upgrades on the AlphaTauri. Uh, Zhou Guan Yu lines up 15th, followed by Sebastian Vettel. And speaking of upgrades, the Aston's new bodywork sure makes it look a lot like a Red Bull. Uh, but the team claims that the design has been in the works since before the season started. And it don't drive like one. <laughs> no. Perhaps the uh, the most conclusive evidence that they did not crib from Red Bull. Uh, although the FIA has, uh, you know, they um, watch kind of the teams at, during their development and have the ability to like, you know, look at their data and stuff to make sure that they're not cribbing from other teams they agree that aston developed their design independently uh, although aston has hired ex red bull staff and whenever anyone points that out i always think like isn't everyone hiring everyone all the time from all the other teams like there's only so many people that know f1 stuff i think this is if you go back to like stephanie gate right that disaster where like uh you know they basically gave mclaren the chair uh for like stealing privileged ferrari information but like you yeah. you scratch beneath the surface of that and it's the sort of thing that happens with like sloppiness around like somebody changing jobs in the same industry like i i do think it's it's one of those really tricky things where uh the entire concept of like privileged intellectual property where like you have a thought and write it down while working at one place. If you take <laughs> it to somewhere else, even though it's living in your head, there's still like a bit of, well, actually no, that thought now belongs to your previous employer. Like <laughs> all those games are ridiculous and F1 is just shot through with them. Yeah. Uh, of course, Red Bull is planning their own internal investigation into whether any design information leaked. Uh, I'm sure we'll see. <laughs> If anything comes from that. Uh, Lance Strolls in 17th, Alex Albon in 18th, Nicholas Latifi in 19th, and Fernando Alonso qualified 17th, but he'll line up in last place because he changed some power unit elements and is required to start from the back of the grid from uh, racefans.net. Quote, at the sixth race of what is now a 22-round championship, Alonso has already exceeded his allocation of internal combustion engines, turbochargers, and MGU-H and MGU-Ks, three of each, as well as energy stores and control electronics, 
two of each. F1 rules state that a 10-place grid penalty is applied the first time an additional element is used and a five-place penalty for further elements. So uh, just uh, let's let's last let's make them last a little longer. A Alpine. I don't know if you just build uh, it in all your assumptions. You know who cares, right? We'll we'll just we'll we'll pair penalty at a race where we're not going to be good, and then we'll we'll bring our new gear uh, to to the front. But it is it is comical how quickly they're burning through this stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, let's burn through the Spanish Grand Prix so we can get to Monaco. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot here. So let's maybe linger on the the exciting stuff. This one really surprised me. I this is certainly the most exciting Spanish Grand Prix probably since uh, Hamilton and Rosberg collided on the first lap. Although I don't remember the rest of that race, so um, it might be the most exciting uh, that I've ever seen. Let's get to the start. Uh, kind of a. A nothing startup at the front. Leclerc stays ahead of Verstappen into turn one, but just behind, Sainz has a poor start and gets jumped by Russell off the line and then by Perez on the inside of turn one. Uh, Perez does make wheel-to-wheel contact with Russell, uh, but they both get away clean. Um, Sainz, I think, also uh, crunches into to Perez, but he then comes under pressure from Hamilton, manages to hold him off into turn four, which opens up a chance for Magnussen, to attempt to pass on Hamilton on the outside of the long right-hander. It's a great move, but Hamilton understeers a little during the corner and drifts into Magnussen, which sends Magnussen off the track and earns Hamilton a puncture. Uh, They both get back to the pits and come out in the back of the field. I I think this is a hands-down racing incident, especially on lap one. Oh, for... No one was awarded any penalties. Yeah, for sure. I... I I'm not sure it's such a great move just because that is a corner where the understeer is so predictable. Um, you know, yeah, I, maybe it, give him a little more space. I, yeah, I, well, I, I just think like it's it was a low percentage play from Magnuson. Is is you think kind so? of my, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I just don't think he had it. Um, and I think like that was pretty much it was fairly predictable how that played out. Um, so yeah, like from, from my view, I don't think it was necessarily a terrible move, but it was, it was optimistic, uh, because you can just see like through that corner, everybody's line just opens up. Um, and if you, if you let off enough to like leave that room, you do lose a lot of corner, lose a lot of cornering pace, uh, emerging out of the straight. So it's like, it's, it's a place where it always feels like you should be able to race more side by side. Um, but it doesn't seem like that actually happens very much in practice, though it happened a bit more uh, at this race. It's true. Uh, but Magnuson is not the only one taking a trip through the gravel because on lap uh, seven, we cut to Signs, who has also spun off at turn four, this time by himself, uh, which gets attributed to a strong gust of tailwind. Uh, still does not look great for Signs, who has seen his share of errors lately. Uh, this one drops him from fifth to 11th. Uh, He is somewhat vindicated, as the exact same thing happens two laps later to reigning champion Max Verstappen. Same deal, except he does not lose as many places, uh, dropping from second to fourth behind Russell and Perez. Well, and and, you know, maybe it's just bad luck when you catch an unlucky gust of wind, but one difference is you can sort of see uh, Max really sensed the car was not going to make the corner at all really early. Like, he doesn't, he bails out of trying to, like, make the turn uh, pretty much before he even begins turning the car, he's just like, "Nope, gonna go straight over the gravel uh, and and avoid the spin." And so, like, he definitely 
either got lucky with like when he felt the gust and had a moment to do something about it, um, or he just maybe had a slightly better feeling for uh, the back of that car letting go uh, in in those conditions. But uh, yeah, it does it does seem like I can't remember many races where the wind is causing this level of issue uh, where, where it seemed to, it it seemed to be making that uh, first sector really treacherous for folks. Yeah. Uh, More drama appears for Verstappen around round or sorry, lap 13 when he is informed over the radio that his DRS flap didn't open Uh, to recap here, the drag reduction system, Flips open the rear wing to increase speed and make passing easier. And when drivers are within a DRS zone, they get a light on their steering wheel and a beep in their earpiece. And then they press a button on the steering wheel to activate it. Uh, And I understand that when they hit the brakes, it automatically closes. But if they hit it again, they can also manually close it. Uh, It appears that Verstappen was pressing the button, but on replays, you can see the wing just immediately close again. Uh, Interestingly, uh, that I found was interesting on the TV graphics, which get the status of the DRS from the car's telemetry. You, the DRS icon sort of like flickered in and out when he was having this problem, um, which was intermittent throughout the race. And at one point, Verstappen's engineer, <coughs> in trying to diagnose the problem, accuses Verstappen of pressing the button again to close the wing, to which he responds like, yeah, I'm having to press it like 50 times to get it to open. Did they ever... Because... Uh... I was watching with MK. We were uh, sort of we were trying to escape this heat wave, and we were sort of watching on my laptop uh, at our hotel. But she had the thought because it was happening at the one corner, right? One DRS it kept opening reliably at one part of the track, or it seemed to be, and then it was down the main straight where it seemed to be having issues. And like, was it wind related? Um, was hmm. was her thought where if it, if it's not happening everywhere, but if it's consistently happening in a place where uh, there's been weird wind shear. Uh, occurring that maybe like something with like the way it's actuated um, wasn't wasn't quite muscling through uh, the the unique turbulence they were encountering. I don't know. It was a it was a thought. It did seem it did seem like it was consistently happening in that one place, um, which is, or maybe it just came up more because that was obviously where he needed it the most to overtake um, Russell. Yeah, they they told him something like you know. Uh, only press the button after you've gone over a curb. And so maybe there's some concern about vibration or like a loose connection there. Another thing that happens or we've seen happen before is like electrical interference. I think yeah. it was, there was like a famous example of maybe Suzuka where there were, it was a part where they ran underneath something and there was like a lot of power lines there and they were getting some weird interference that was causing problems on the cars through like cabling um on the overpass so who knows uh the 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 team attributed the fault to a result of their aggressive weight saving Mm. at least uh, christian horner did their team principal um and again this this actually popped up during qualifying the team made a fix after that but apparently that didn't work so verstappen's gonna have to deal with this the whole race it did however uh make quite make for quite an interesting wrinkle because verstappen and russell both make pit stops around the same time um, and so Verstappen is stuck behind a slower Russell slower car, uh, but without DRS, except for sometimes. So sometimes he gets it, sometimes he doesn't. And w- this results in a quite interesting game of attack and defense 
that reaches its zenith on lap 24 when Verstappen uh, does manage to get DRS to work and dives down the inside of Russell at turn one. Uh, he makes it past at that turn, but Russell does a tremendous job to keep the momentum up and slide up the inside of turn two and retake the position. Then it's side-by-side into turn three, but Russell on the inside holds the position into turn four. Uh, Just a fantastic battle. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it really was. Um, Also, it really highlighted how tricky the... um, sort of what the what the lines are around clean racing versus being overly defensive because there was there's there was maybe one time where i felt like russell was moving over a little early to because because the way he was doing it um his strategy was to defend the right hand side in in general to defend the right hand side of the main straight uh and then as they approach turn one swing back out onto the racing line to the left to make that right-hand turn. And for the most part, he seemed to be doing it um, really cleanly where he's not going fully on the racing line. He's still taking an inside line into that corner um, and leaving lots of space off to his left for the other driver. And he was making that move fairly late. He was, he was, he was maintaining his defensive line basically right up into uh, corner entry. And there's only like one time uh, in this like multi-lap duel where I felt like maybe he'd come out uh, a little bit early uh, in what could be sort of like a defensive weave uh, out to the left. But it seems like it was it was all good uh, from the standpoint of both drivers. Even though Red Bull were on, on the radio to Verstappen uh, trying to sort of bait him, being like he's not giving him much room. He's kind of moving around in the braking zone. And like, <laughs> you know, no, nothing really from Max there. Um, and after the race, you know, he and Russell both seemed to be pretty happy with the, the the way the battle unfolded. But yeah, it was it was absolutely terrific stuff. Um, and boy, I, great performance from George. Really drove the wheels off that thing. Um, you know, he was he was in a tough position because like. Uh, you know, it was, it was him, it was him basically, uh, you know, being, being stuck alone with those, uh, with those Red Bulls. Um, but do we want to talk about the fact that like, this has gotten some criticism, uh, Lewis wanted to bail on the race. Uh, yeah. After that, after that clash with Magnuson, you know, he gets on the radio a few laps later and he says, you know, if I were you guys. I just saved the engine. And that is surprise that has attracted a shock. I, I guess it shouldn't be shocking, right? Everything these guys do is, is parsed. But like what is uh, you know what what is your view? Cuz I've seen a lot of people having thoughts about like the mindset or like the attitude revealed there and I'm curious what you made of the the message. Uh <clears throat> I I think my knee-jerk reaction was kind of surprised and and Martin Brundle um uh I guess vocalized that. I think he said something like, "I really didn't like hearing that message from from Lewis." And I, you know, sound it sounds. I think at first blush, defeatist. Um, but also, it's it's kind of pragmatic. Uh, yeah. Certainly, coming from the way that that car has performed in previous races, uh, we, you know, ha- with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that the car was was very good this weekend. Um, but it wasn't, uh, up until this weekend. So the fact that he thinks that, you know, I'm already in the back of the field, it doesn't make sense for me to 
uh, waste a whole race on this engine. Um, you know, we, we, we just saw, we talked about Fernando Alonso having to take a bunch of engine parts. You know, Hamilton's thinking, I'm already in the back of the field. Why, why race this whole way just so I can take a 10-place grid penalty later in the season? Um, I, so I can kind of go both ways on it. I, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think it's Hamilton does get this way sometimes. Yep. Um, it's not it, this. It wasn't necessarily a surprise uh, to hear it from him. Um, but I, I don't think it's one hundred percent either way. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No. I'm, I'm basically with you. Like, I didn't think it was such a preposterous idea to retire the car. First of all. Yeah. Um, because. It doesn't. It has not felt uh, this season like it is the kind of Mercedes that can do a back to the front uh, type of race the way he was capable of like these la- these previous years. Um, and I think you're, I think you're right. Like Hamilton's always had, I would say, a bit of a morose uh, like attitude when he's in the cockpit like the whole like positive team lewis hamilton uh you know still right like all that is between races and after the races and like him as like cheerleader for for the team and all that but like when he's in the cockpit i think he's i think you're right he's always been a guy who gets a bit more in his feelings a bit more dour about his prospects and like it just all lands differently when the successes aren't aren't coming. And I think this this goes back to so much of the way people are evaluating F one. It's so circumstantial. Like Hamilton, in like is struggling with the car. Yes. Also, he has a bad race here because he's starting in the middleish part of the front of the pack, and bad things happen to you in the middleish part of an F one pack, and more things happen that set you up to look like you're screwing up or making mistakes because you are in positions where you are more dependent on mischance uh, and you are in more positions where like things can just go awry. And so I do think some of this is uh, same guy in a lot of ways. It's just, he's no longer cruising to a world championship and all gets reevaluated is like, is Lewis is, is Lewis really in the right headspace? Uh, and of course now there's George to compare him to, uh, who is relatively thriving uh, with with this car? Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was just an interesting interesting detour uh, in in the theme of this weekend. And I guess speaking of that, like you know teams uh, teammates of wildly varying fortunes, it sure felt like this was going to be another notch in the uh, you know gallant Charles and Goofus signs <laughs> uh, thing right until and. I, this like George Russell was the ultimate wingman for Charles in this race. Like <laughs> he was guaranteeing that like, this was a Ferrari lock uh, yeah. because he had like, it was like 38 seconds that it opened up between like Leclerc and Russell and that pack of uh, Red Bulls. And my heart just sank when you hear on the radio. No, 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 no. Yeah. Lap 27, uh, the Russell Verstappen battle for second place becomes a battle for first because Leclerc, who has been leading by a mile, starts slowing and is told to pit where they retire the car with an apparent power unit problem. Uh, Evidently, the issue resided with the MGUH, uh, the temperamental uh, um, 
heat reclaimer and the turbocharger, uh, which you can actually hear going nuts in the Claire's onboard. It's the high pitched part of the engine note that sounds kind of like a jet engine. Uh, it just goes like zoo, um, as soon as uh, uh, he starts to slow. Uh, crucially for the championship, Ferrari said that those components were damaged beyond repair after the race. So Leclerc will have to make do with his other two sets uh, for the entire year or incur a penalty. Uh, so he is out of the race from first. Uh, Verstappen still going for Russell. He tries again shortly thereafter, but Russell stays ahead. Uh, so Verstappen pits on lap 29. Russell stays out. And on lap 31 gets overtaken by Perez, who had pitted later than the other two and had fresher tires. Uh, meanwhile, Verstappen is doing his best to catch back up and gets by Botas, who's running in third place, by the way, uh, by passing him on the outside of turn 12, which isn't normally a passing area, but Verstappen does it cleanly. Uh, he eventually catches up to Russell uh, on his aging tires by lap 37, at which point Russell pits, seeding second place to Verstappen. And it only takes about 10 laps for Verstappen to close the six-second gap to his teammate Perez, who on lap 47 gets the radio message, you are on a different strategy to Max. If he's quicker, we let him through. To which Perez responds, that's very unfair, but okay. And indeed, he does let him through on lap 49. Team orders, Rob. Well, but then you saw the pace differential between them. Like, it was one of those things where it was like, and maybe and maybe that's the thing. Maybe it should have been like, hey, Max, like if you got it, go get it done. Right. Like that historic like Mercedes has let them operate that way pretty extensively in previous years. I would say that's been an oddity in front running F1 teams. Um, yeah. I think most teams aren't super, super keen on doing that stuff. Uh, and, you know, I think it's one of those things where I don't think it would have been much of a fight. Like, I think it was a foregone conclusion because, like, Max just, like, he was over the horizon, basically, the minute that pass happened. Uh, but, yeah, like, I, I think Perez is a bit in his feelings. No driver likes getting those team orders things, but uh, this seemed like a pretty clear case of there's just no, like, this is a foregone conclusion. There's no there's no value in fighting it out. And it's not like they were safe to wrestle at that point, right? Like this is a, this, this whole race is a very shit happens kind of race. Um, and if either of them had a mishap, uh, later, not even necessarily like if they were dueling, but just, if it took longer to execute this, this change, uh, then you're probably still in the zone where like, if somebody has another off, uh, you've just given a place back to Mercedes. That'll be hard to get back. So I, I think that, this is a case where I'm just like, Sergio, this is the game, right? <laughs> like, this is this is the job yeah. sometimes, man. Uh, and maybe he knows that, too, and this is all about, like, putting the marker down for, hey, don't assume that you can just do this willy-nilly, right? Like, you know, you're always sort of fighting the next battle. Yeah, and he is in contract negotiations, apparently, with Red Bull for his, his next stint, or or perhaps not. Who will? Who knows? We will see. Uh, let's get to the multiple redemption arcs in this race. Signs, who spun off the track earlier, has kept it clean and on lap 58 passes Botas for fourth place. And just behind him, Lewis Hamilton, who I will remind everyone was in 19th place on lap two. 
also gets by Botas on the same lap on the outside of turn three. Botas, by the way, is running on a two-stop strategy, meaning his tires are pretty old, and lamented after the race that a three-stop could have put him in a better position to fight Hamilton. Uh, you know who else was in the back of the field at the beginning of the race? Fernando Alonso, now in ninth in the points. Uh, Hamilton is not done, by the way. On lap 60 of 66, he gets by signs on the outside of turn one for fourth place with the help of DRS. Sadly for him, though, both he and Russell get a dire warning from their pit wall saying to slow both cars or risk a DNF. Did not finish. We don't want that. Uh, Hamilton, in particular, is told to lift and coast, which means to lift off the gas earlier rather than using the brakes as much. Uh, Russell got a cooling warning earlier in the race, so uh, I guess watch for this to be an issue at hot tracks going forward. It was blazingly hot at this yeah. track this weekend. Like I cannot believe when I learned what the temperature was. It was like it was easily in the nineties. Uh, like and yeah. people just out there on those bare bare stands. Man, you gotta. I love F1. I don't know if I love it. <laughs> just sitting that sun <laughs> beating down. Uh, and apparently the, the track was also just a nightmare to get into and out of. Uh, so just mm. like, you know, you got a great race, but man, you, you paid for it to attend this one. Yeah, apparently it was so bad on Hamilton's car that his engineer says, if we have to give up the place, then we'll have to do that. Which is exactly what happens. Signs retakes the place at turn one with just one lap to go. Uh, yeah, I said, I think during the race, it, 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 uh, came out that it was a water leak or something. Um, I think, uh, Brundle was surmising that maybe it was brakes. Uh, but yeah, something, something to watch for. Uh, something I hope I don't see again is the drone shot. Did you see, did you notice this? They're, they, they're using live drones now for yeah. camera, but they can't fly over the track. And the camera is pointed in the direction of the drone's flight. So you're just seeing out of the corner of the picture cars, but mostly just like a barren interior of the track. It's it's not a good shot. You need a you need a gimbal. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great shot, I will. Like I'm just I'm skeptical, like Drones are not that fast. You know, they're fast. They're fa- like they're fast for like a football game. They're not F one fast, and so yeah. like it does. Like this is part where yeah, uh, like camera booms and like squirrel cams and such seem like they are better options. Plus the plus the helicopter. But I can imagine the FAA would love to not have to have that helicopter uh, as much or be as reliant on it, uh, especially because drivers have complained that like sometimes the helicopter watch. Uh, interferes with their racing, so I can imagine they're they're hopeful that they can at some point uh, do do more with like using drones for presentation. But yeah, not an auspicious uh, outing. No, you got You got to separate the the. Fl- you got to have tank controls. You got to be able to turn the turret. Yep. Independent of your path of movement. Uh, anyway, that's just some. You know, annoying video producer talk. Uh, here's the result of the race. Max Verstappen wins. Uh, Sergio Perez in second says he wants to speak with his team about team orders after the race. Uh, George Russell, third place podium position for that man who has scored uh, in the top five every race this season. Uh, behind him, Carlos Sainz 
and Lewis Hamilton in fifth. Valtteri Bottas comes home sixth. Esteban Ocon in seventh. Uh, and then Lando Norris in eighth, who apparently had tonsillitis and felt awful all weekend. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, Fernando Alonso comes home in ninth, grabs some points from the back of the grid, and Yuki Sonoda, the last points-paying position, in 10th. Behind him, Sebastian Vettel. Daniel Ricciardo in 12th. Man, what is up? It's... I'm, I, I don't know what, for what reason, but it's feeling more glaring. Oh, dude, it's so... Than it like, ever has to I, me. If I go back in time... Well, there's a lot of things I would do if I go back in time, but one of them, like, somewhere down, like, the maybe the... 100th or 120th thing I would do with the time machine would would be to cruise by like Danny Ricks and be like, stay at Renault. They like you. The car agrees with you. You're part of an upward trajectory. Can't tell you why you can't go to McLaren. You just can't go to McLaren. Don't do it. You can't drive that car. You can't drive it. Because that's that, like he doesn't he didn't look this bad in comparison anywhere else. Yeah. But here. And I think it is just, you know, not you allude- even to Verstappen. Pardon? No, no, not you, even you've alluded Verstappen. to this before. He is like F1 cars have radically different driving characteristics, uh, and I feel like the Alp, the the uh, Renault uh, Alpine had sort of been developing around him really nicely, uh, and yeah, he got into. I feel like both. I feel like both. Danny and Carlos have been wildly ill-served by the swap. I feel like hmm. both of them were in really happy positions before they, like, before this, like, this McLaren hinge point in their careers. Uh, and I understand, like, why, you know, the theory is if if Ferrari calls, you have to go. But it does feel like both of them had really great narratives around themselves and, like, really good image as, like, a elite driver and now it's all like, so what's going on there? And you do not want to be in F1, one of those guys who race after race. The narrative is like, eh, so what's, what's the deal there? Why, why, is, it, uh, why is it so hard? Uh, his contract expires in 2023, so he's got one more year. Uh, but I, if he doesn't drastically improve, I don't see how it gets renewed. No, and I don't see where he would like there's too much young talent right like yeah, if this doesn't work problem. out i just don't see him uh even like toward the back of the grid i think most of the teams there would ha- more readily gamble on uh, a young driver rather than like a declining danny rick yeah well let's finish off the uh the results here pierre gasly 13th place mick schumacher in 14th was at one stage running in the points it's gonna happen this year i can feel it those uh, two stop strategies were a disaster. Just like like him yeah. and Valtteri, both of them, like, it was, to be fair, like, it seemed like a lot of people were expecting the two stop to be viable, but yeah, it just, like, demolished both their finishings. Yeah. Um, Lance Stroll in 15th, Nicholas Latifi in 16th. Commentator saying he's fighting for his seat with a possible Nick DeVries mid-season swap. Well, that's true. That's just curtains. Like, I have nothing (laughs) against the guy. There's nothing to indicate that he's got a lot of pace. He doesn't. He has money. Yeah. So, like, if they don't need the money anymore, then it's done. Then then it's over. It's possible they don't need the money anymore because I imagine the value of an F1 car as a sponsorship opportunity business partner is higher than it was three years ago. 
So, uh, yeah. Especially when you've got Andretti waiting in the wings and seemingly blocked at every turn uh, to try to come into the sport. And so that that drives up the yeah. you know value of a, an F1 team. Uh, Kevin Magnussen in 17th, he never really recovered from his incident with Lewis Hamilton. And then Alex Albon in 18th, who was suffering from so much tire degradation in the race that he said in this quote from race fans, I could have done a five or six stop and it probably would have been quicker. Yeah, as, he, as so it was, he did a four great. stop. It was just like a, he has a, it was an unusually shit race for him. <laughs> like yeah. you're used to seeing him uh, doing some decent things uh, moving up through the, through the pack. But yeah, nothing here. Uh, not cl- not classified in the race, Charles Leclerc uh, and Zhou Guan Yu, who retired early in the race with a technical issue, apparently unrelated to Leclerc's technical issue, because Alfa Romeo give, also runs the Ferrari engine. Give Zhou Guan Yu a car that can finish a race challenge, uh, 2022. It is like, <laughs> yep. it is a real run of misfortune uh, over there at Alfa. Uh, meanwhile, Valtteri continuing to thrive. Yeah. And Perez scored an additional point for setting the fastest lap of the race. Let's get to the driver standings here. There's a swap at the top. Max Verstappen in the lead with 110 points. Six points ahead of Charles Leclerc with 104. Then we've got a 19-point gap to Sergio Perez with 65. Uh, George Russell is in fourth place with 74. I'm sorry, Sergio has got 85. Russell's got 74. And Carlos Sainz Jr. has 65 in fifth place. Behind him, Lewis Hamilton with 46. Lando Norris with 39. One point ahead of Valtteri Bottas in eighth place. And we got ninth place Esteban Ocon with 30. Kevin Magnussen in tenth with 15 points. And uh, just behind him, Yuki Tsunoda and Daniel Ricciardo are tied with 11 points. Pierre Gasly is in 13th place with 6. And we've got Sebastian Vettel tied with Fernando Alonso uh, with 4 points. Fernando moves up 2 positions with those points. Uh, Alex Albon is in 16th with 3. Lance Stroll's got 2. Zhou Guan Yu has 1. And then Nico Hulkenberg is tied with Mick Schumacher and Nicholas Latifi with 0. In the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull Racing is on top with 195 points. Two Ferraris, 169. Mercedes is in third with 120. Then McLaren with 50. Alfa Romeo is in fifth with 39, followed by Alpine with 34. Alfa Tauri is in seventh with 17 points to Haas's 15. And then uh, we've got ninth place Aston Martin with three and Williams. I'm sorry, Aston Martin's got six and Williams has three. And with that, we take it to the news. Not a lot going on in the news world, um, but I did want to point out uh, this one article here. F1 set to group races by region in 2023. Calendar reshuffle this from Autosport. Apparently, Stefano Domenicali, the uh, CEO of Formula One, has uh, regular Saturday coffee morning meetings with team principals at race weekends. And during uh, this one in Barcelona, apparently it was brought up that uh, F1 wants to make the calendar a little more sane in terms of travel, you know, so we don't do the uh, Monaco, you know, or um, Miami to Spain to Monaco to Baku to, you know, there's a lot of crisscrossing of the earth, which is not only uh, against Formula One's, you know, stated eco goals, but also in this 
uh, supply chain strained era, extremely expensive. So apparently they are serious about this. I imagine the the cost thing has probably pushed them to uh, to get it done um, more forcefully than maybe the Earth becoming a you know a flaming ball of gas does. But um, uh, he did not go into extensive detail apparently. But from this article, quote: "It's understood that Baku could be grouped." in a run of races with Shanghai and Suzuka. Shanghai, though, bunch of question marks uh, still because of COVID. Also, that doesn't, from your expression, Rob, that doesn't really solve that's, a whole lot. <laughs> you know, Baku's really far away. Like, this is, so this is the problem. It's is that, Asia. <laughs> this, is, this is sort of the problem, is like, there are places where it makes sense where it's like, okay, like the European race races should be grouped together and keep the cars like loaded on trucks or like maybe even, uh, you know, uh, you know, rail, uh, at that point. But beyond that, when it's like, ah, the circuits moving to Asia, the Asian leg of the tour, that's an entire hemisphere. Like all of that is spread out. Like it is enormous. The distances are hard to like do justice to like the, the amount of the amount of ocean separating like Singapore from Japan, from, uh, you know, uh, from Shanghai. These, these are all enormous distances that you're, you're dealing with. Um, and so, yeah, the idea of like, Oh, we can group Baku in there. Um, that's not a natch that that isn't a grouping that makes a ton of sense. Uh, but hey, you know, if they at least can rationalize the North American leg and the European legs, they will probably have a much logistically and economically like saner schedule. Cause like it, it does not like that part does not seem like it should be as hard a problem as they made it. Um, yeah. but you know, this is, this is worth it for years. It's been like, ah, the European leg, including, uh, including Montreal, and it's like yeah. I'm sure it made sense to someone at some point. Yeah, you know, Fr- you know, French speaking, sure. But it, increasingly, it's just like I do. I don't understand why it's like the series starts in Europe, hops over to Montreal, goes back to Europe before starting its American tour. Uh, I mean, here let me let me just uh, call out races two through like ten here. Yeah, Saudi Arabia. To Australia, to Italy, to Miami. Then we've got Spain and Monaco, to Baku, to Canada, to Britain. That's that's some that's, that's some Indiana Jones some, red lines. Yeah, some real zigzagging. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of zigzagging all over the place. Rob, what's up with this next story? Well, there's so I saw a bit of this, uh, mostly because the idea is so unpopular um, among some some fans. But uh, the the FIA president uh, Mohammed Ben uh, Salam has referred to the possibility that they might bring Michael Massey back uh, in some capacity maybe as part of their rotating cast of race directors. Uh, the way this has worked out is that we were supposed to have two race directors to begin with, uh, Niels Wittich and uh, Eduardo Freitas, uh, for this year. 
Freitas has been really and and will continue to be really busy with uh endurance racing. And so he's already being covered uh by I forget the uh the other race director's uh name, but like there's an assistant to both of them uh who's stepped up in Freitas's place uh for for some of these races. But uh yeah, they're talking about the possibility that you know, Michael Massey wasn't fired by the FIA. He was just removed out from the race director role for F1. Um, they could still use him for for running F1 races. And there's this quote, um, you know, uh, Ben Salam said, "Our, you know, he may be in a good place to use. We are open to everything. Our race structure was wrong organizationally. And though we brought in two new race directors, I wouldn't say we've got it all right yet. We need to clean the stables. Uh, but he would like to see a minimum of three race directors, ideally by the beginning of next year. So uh, here's what I will say. I think fundamentally he is right. I think the difference in tenor of these races now that there's no longer direct access between team principals or sporting directors and the race director is night and day. Like I don't want to trivialize the fact that for 20 some races, Michael Massey had the most, I want to speak to the manager motherfuckers in his ear for half of every race, (laughs) uh, for, for the better part of a year. And I do have some sympathy for why he cracked at the end and like got peevish with total wolf, uh, and, and kind of melted down under that stress. Like, I don't like, I don't think he necessarily, would be an inept race director. I, I do agree that like the structure was really wrong. He was sort of left out to dry. That being said, there are some things you don't come back from like botching the most closely contested, uh, end to a world championship, uh, in decades and then making clear you're kind of doing it partly out of spite and partly cause you're just kind of like overwhelmed and you're pulling stuff out of your ass. Like, I don't think I don't think he's worth bringing back. I don't see how you can do it. Um and that's even that's even setting aside the fact that like F1 has a toxic stand culture of people who just never let anything go and are constantly in each other's faces like it's predominantly uh Hamilton and Verstappen uh fans who like do this but it is like it, you shouldn't necessarily let the direction of things be dictated uh, by like those toxic elements of fandom. But at the same time, I think even beyond that, there would be so much controversy and bad blood around saying Massey returned to the race director seat it is just not worth it. Like he may be an extraordinarily knowledgeable, um, you know, administrator and uh, director of open wheel racing. I don't, see how he can come how he comes back to f1 yeah i think uh i think i agree on all points uh let's take it to monaco rob let's let's do it uh so monaco grand prix uh a historic street circuit uh going back you know basically to the origins of formula one absolutely grandfathered in because of its historic <laughs> status has been been hosting races uh basically since they started racing f1 cars and 
unusually enough one its layout just hasn't changed all that much like if you look at a map of the track they're racing in the 50s like there are meaningful differences between what they race on now particularly like in the harbor section but fundamentally uh this is this is a circuit that has remained the same uh for for better and worse uh and and has a lot of like iconic uh, locations on it so the big rap on monaco course is that there is no overtaking it's very funny if you go back and you listen to um our show on the movie grand prix right where the racers will narrate their thoughts racing these uh cars in the 60s around these tracks one of the characters even talks about how even back then monaco is a track where passing isn't really possible and this is an era where the cars are basically just little like <laughs> little steel tubes uh, with narrow, <laughs> no aerodynamics, and they're about like a half the size of a modern F1 car. And even back then, it's like, nope, you just you can't do it. Uh, and it just hasn't really changed ever since. And this is a case where I don't think there is an aero package F1 can run in the world to deal with the fundamental problems of the tight, twisting streets of Monte Carlo. Uh, so... Uh, it is a, God, what is it, a three and a half, yeah, so it's a 3.3 kilometer circuit. Um, every corner here is is sort of famous or infamous. Uh, probably the one place where, can you overtake in turn one? No. <laughs> Occasionally does someone think they can overtake in turn one, also known as a son to vote. Uh, yes, absolutely. People have tried it. I think Max in his like rookie season uh, or so uh, gave it a good college try. Um, and the problem there is, it's really not is there's not enough space to go too wide around that corner. And so whoever ends up, either there's going to be a collision, uh, or and this is sort of true in a lot of places on this track, or you have to bail out and you go into an escape cul-de-sac really more than a, than an escape road um rest of sector one is uh a pretty exciting uphill run uh down N- none of the straights are really straight here is the other thing there's nothing there's nothing easy about this track uh the this this first straight out of turn one actually has multiple like little swaying curves in it uh it leads you down to the casino uh the the, the casino section and then you go into a series of hairpin turns uh, culminating with the Grand Hotel hairpin, uh, which is a famous overhead shot in F1 uh, where the car is basically slow to an absolute crawl to negotiate a like 180 degree hairpin uh, that is so tight. I think it would be tricky for a subcompact to navigate at at <laughs> speed uh and so you see these cars just sort of nurse their way around uh from there they exit onto the tunnel straight which isn't really a straight it's a long sweeping uh right hander that leads to the other place that it seems like hey is passing possible here at the nouvelle chicane no passing is not possible <laughs> chicane despite what the fact despite what the senna documentary may have led you to believe uh that was a different era conditions were weird what's going to happen at nouvelle chicane is that someone will try to pass can't do it and they will cut the chicane and because f1 has rules 
and we live in a society, they will not let you keep the position if you just cut the chicane. Uh, even if only cut it a little bit, they're not going to let you keep that position. Uh, and from there, you you head into sort of the, the, the last sort of sector of, of the racetrack, uh, the, the pool section. You go around the harbor, make a hard left at Tobac, and yeah, you 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 cut around this you cut you cut around this pool, and then you go to uh, a really zero margin for error, uh, like chicane. That was it, Leclerc, who blew it last year. Yeah, it is a it is a section where uh, you got a left and a right hander that are so tight. That if you get it like a quarter of an inch wrong, it feels like your car will hit. By the way, there's no runoff. It's all like guardrails and stuff. Your car will hit uh, and you'll be taken out. And that's kind of what happened to Charles Leclerc. Uh, this is a track where every race, every lap has to be basically like inch perfect uh, or you're going to have an incident. From there, you get down to the uh, the Rescas, uh, you know, not quite a hairpin, but but just about another very slow, come to a full full stop, like blind right hander. Uh, you make your way around, uh, you know, another another right hander and back onto the main straight. And that is that is a lap at Monaco. Um, it is a harrowing and exhilarating drive, but it is not historically uh, presented us with many exhilarating races. Um, and so I, I think that's we will see what the new what the new uh, like regulations have accomplished here. But fundamentally, this is a tight, narrow street circuit on like ancient European streets in modern F1 cars that are enormous. Uh, and, you know, it is a it's an ongoing issue uh, every year. Yes. Uh, Formula One's website lists. um when the track was built as the year 1215, which is when Monaco was first established as beautiful. a colony of Genoa. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, for reasons that uh, should now be apparent, qualifying really matters uh, at Monaco. Um, and interestingly, looking at the weather here, we've got uh, 78 degrees Fahrenheit on qualifying day or 23, uh, 26 Celsius rather. Uh, wind, oh, not so bad. It looks like about 10 kilometers an hour or six miles an hour, but precipitation, 32% and climbing for qualifying day. Uh, then slightly cooler temperatures on race day, actually significantly, 69 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 Celsius, uh, and precipitation uh, at race time, which is 3 p.m. local. We've got 56% chance of rain and falling off from there uh, with a little higher wind speed, 13 kilometers an hour and 8 miles an hour. So, question marks abound. Uh, but yes, we, we already went down the driver standings and team standings, but if you'd like to join the standings yourself, you can join our fantasy league using the link in the show notes. Here's the top. Wow. A four way tie in Spain, uh, from the UK red bull with a rich energy chaser. Uh, that's Morgan's team. Logan's team from the U S bully pulpit. Uh, Jake's team from the U S red bull simp squad. 
and Dennis's team from Norway, Flying Cows. Overall, though, our top three look like this. From Canada, Jeremy's team, What's for Stappening to Me? Pretty good. Uh, second place, Peter's team from the UK. We look like a bunch of bankers. And Michael's team in first place from Canada, Leo Speed. Uh, you can send us an email if you like, shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. You can also hit us up on Twitter at shiftf1podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. Rob Zachney is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. That's us around the internet. Now let's take it around the world of racing. Kicking off Friday with the Camping World Trucks. They're at the Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina for the North Carolina Education Lottery 200. That's right. Uh, the following day, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, also at Charlotte, races the Alsco Uniforms 300. We've also got the ADAC Total Energies 24 Hours of the Nurburgring on Saturday. And uh, Formula 2 is supporting uh, Formula 1 this weekend in Monaco. They'll kick off on Saturday as well. Uh, wow, is this right? We've also got the Isle of Man TT, apparently, this weekend. Oh my god. Which is wild, if you've never seen it. Uh, the MotoGP race is in... Uh, oh, it's in Mugello, in Italy. Very cool. For the Grand Primo d'Italia. Motocross Grand Prix of Spain is this weekend in Xanadu. Ooh. Amazing. Uh... Supra GT is at the uh, Suzuka circuit in Unuocho. Suzukashi. Mie Prefecture. Mm. Easy for me to say. Mie Prefecture. Uh, and the other big race this weekend always seems to be paired with Monaco. The 106th running of the Indianapolis 500 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Indiana. I would love to go one day. But that's not the last bit of racing we have here. We got an S-car, of course. Sunday at Charlotte for the Coca-Cola 600. Is there anything more American on Memorial Day? Been a nice cold uh, Coca-Cola. Little wow. Jim Beam in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, Formula One. Friday, May 27th. Friday, by the way. Not the traditional Thursday uh, that Monaco usually is. We're starting on Friday here. Free practice one at 8 a.m. Eastern time on ESPN2, followed by free practice two at 11 a.m., also on ESPN2. Saturday, May 28th, free practice three is at 7 a.m. on ESPN2, followed by qualifying at 10 a.m., also on ESPN2. And the race, everyone, Sunday, May 29th at 9 a.m. on ESPN. Final thoughts, Rob? Uh, you know, I think, so my, my takeaway, like, from Spain, really, is, like, it was a much better Spanish Grand Prix than we were used to having, and we got lucky with a lot of, like, fluky things, right? Yeah. Like, Leclerc was driving away with it, uh, in, like, some cars were out of position, and then once all that stuff settled down, I would say the last, like, third of that race was pretty processional, uh, in a, in a lot of places, and so I think it's one of those things where uh, it was it was a good show. I, I enjoyed the race a lot. 
I was hoping that I would feel a little bit more like, ah, they really, the new regs have really restored some great old circuits like this to, to life. Not quite there yet. I, I, I feel like if um, reliability weren't such a factor, uh, and maybe if there hadn't been such like flu- like freakish gusts of wind, uh, I feel like we might have come, come come out of this one feeling very different about Spain. Yes, um, I think I'm with you. I also we didn't really get to this, uh, but I, I don't. <laughs> I, I didn't necessarily see anyone saying this, but I don't think it's a uh, an indicator that we should get rid of DRS. You know, no. like. No. <laughs> yes, it was made exciting by Verstappen's DRS problems, but I don't think that's an indication that getting rid of DRS wouldn't, you know, uh, would just lead to cool racing. I still think instead of that occurrence, we would see, uh, it would just be frustrating seeing yeah. cars unable to pass. Yeah. Um, so more work, I guess, uh, needs to be done on that front. But uh, yeah, if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, you can do so over at patreon.com slash Shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>